everyone. Welcome to the Sustainability Review. This is Christine here with Netta. Um, so I wanted to, we're both graduate students at ASU, and I wanted to interview my friend Netta about her PhD research because it's so interesting and it's so different and it's so creative. Um, and so it's about the emotional and self-care side of sustainability and um, how sustainability activists can be introspective. And so I, I guess we can just hop straight into it. Um, I don't have any questions prepared, but I have one. Okay. <laughs> what is, what is your general research interest? Like, what do you plan on doing with your PhD? That's a great question. <laughs> um, so disclaimer, I am in my first year as a PhD program. So I did my master's in the School of Sustainability at ASU and then took a gap year. And now I'm resuming my PhD. Um, and I've been practicing kind of the pitch as I have to introduce myself in different environments. But I think what I've come, come to terms with is that I'm trying to look at the intersection between self-reflection, creative expression, and experiential nature trips and how the intersection of those three is really valuable for cultivating a sense of inner sustainability or a sense of self-care and particularly I'm interested in looking at individuals who are on the forefronts of creative change so as you mentioned activists people in leadership roles perhaps even teachers people who are navigating the boundary between existing within a society and also trying to change that society since I feel as though those of us who are in on the forefront, so to say, on the front lines of trying to, you know, both exist in a society and trying to change it, it can be pretty overwhelming. So that's why I'm choosing to focus particularly on that population. Okay, got it. So how, I mean, this is a pretty interesting niche of a field that you've gotten yourself into. How did you, how did you get here? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> so, um, so I, for my bachelor's, I studied at the University of Maryland College Park, and I studied environmental science and policy with a focus on international politics and policy. And I actually initially started off as environmental engineering, but very quickly after a semester decided I didn't want to do that. And I was going towards the law route. So I was very interested in international environmental law. Um, since I really believed in the institutional system and our ability to use the legal process and policy making as a means of creating change. And the more that I did research into that world and began to understand what the legal field entails, I realized it didn't have enough of the um, personal component that I wanted. It felt like a lot of it was a battle of ideas, a battle of rhetoric. And uh, for me, it was it was a little bit too caught up in the details. Like there was, I remember a class where I had to argue for something that I was morally opposed to, mm -hmm. but it was a good exercise, great exercise. But at the end, I just wanted to scream. I was like, you know, we all know this is wrong, you know, like <laughs> why, you know. Um, so I I became disenchanted with the legal the legal side of environmentalism, mm -hmm. and then I I looked in. I'd had some exposure to the field of sustainability, but then when I mm -hmm. learned about ASU's um, school, I decided to apply for a graduate program there. And during my master's research um, here at the School mm -hmm. of Sustainability, I was very fortunate that I was given enough freedom and flexibility to explore, um, you know, the research that I wanted to do. And at the time, I was looking at this idea of well-being, um, similar to what I'm doing now, but this was much more broad. And I was very curious because we use the word sustainability so often 
but we don't often think about what we actually need to be sustaining. You know, we, we say, oh, okay, well, we want a good quality of life for all humans and future generations, but we don't actually think about what is that good quality of life. So I was very interested in exploring that. And so I decided to work with two communities here in the Phoenix area. One was a naturopathic medical school and another was a Waldorf school. And since these two communities had a very interesting understanding of the interdependencies between human and natural systems, I wanted to work with them to see, okay, if we were to begin to try and develop this idea of sustainable well-being or, you know, a good quality of life that is in harmony with the planet, what would it actually look like? So I worked with them to develop these um, potential methods of inquiry and investigation for their own communities. It was a participatory research process. And then I decided to take a year off um, and I did a lot of personal self-exploration, self-study. And I realized that a, a way to distill these, these understandings of well-being and interdependency with the planet, um, a good inlet into that would be this idea of self-care. And uh, I really, I've been reaffirmed of the belief that, you know, if we want to change something, we have to start from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though in the field of sustainability, it's so easy for us to get into the preacher mindset, you know, to think, and we all get into that trap, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, well, if only everybody believed what we believe, you know, mm -hmm. if only everybody was educated enough to think the way that we do, as opposed to realizing that there is, you know, so much complexity in each person's path and we can only really start from within and, and trying to embody those values that, that we hold dearly. So, so kind of uh, a little bit of a, a magnifying glass on how I, how I got to where I am okay. now. Interesting. So I hear, I mean, I would have to have you in the future repeat what you said originally about your current research interests because there's so many different parts to it and one of the main parts I hear is about change like you've always been interested in change and originally um, the route that you were taking was more of a policy route mm -hmm. kind of a top-down way mm -hmm. and now you're more interested in how instead of um, advocating for and enacting these policies how can we get people to collectively change their minds themselves mm -hmm. and and a lot of what, I know you haven't said the word yet, but I'm going to, I think it's interesting because a lot of what you're saying, especially about um, like well-being, to me, I hear that that has to do with emotions and mm -hmm. the way that people feel. And it's really interesting because um, when it comes to sustainability, I feel like different people are motivated by different emotions. And mm -hmm. sometimes when we're thinking about the barriers to change and the barriers to sustainability, sometimes people don't want to... Um, enact environmentally responsible behaviors because they feel like um, it's just um, they feel like it's promoted by like this guilt, this sense of guilt that we've done something wrong to the environment and mm -hmm. then once mm -hmm. we change what, once we do something right for the environment then we're going to be in a place of discomfort and we're not going to be able to have the livelihood that we once had. Mm -hmm. But there's also this other kind of narrative around sustainability this other emotional narrative that's more about it's more of like a positive psychology and it's more about, it's more driven for a sense of not that we're guilty and that we're shameful about what we've done to the environment, but how can we change our relationship to the environment so that we collectively can be happier and more well. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about um, kind of the introspective side of sustainability, that's what I hear. I hear like emotions and positive psychology mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if um, you can speak to that or mm -hmm. if there's like a role for emotions in your research. Absolutely. That's a, <laughs> that's a really great point. And actually, I think to add on to that, 
I find it so surprising that sustainability has become a partisan issue. You know, we associate mm -hmm. um, caring for the environment with certain political parties too. And um, I think it's it's so important to start from that, that place of, of your emotions and to look at what is causing the gut reactions that, that we have, right? There's a, a really good um, metaphor that's used um, in this book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, I think is his name, um, where it's this metaphor of a rider on an elephant. And he uses this idea that the, the elephant are our emotions, are our gut reactions to things, the ways that we've been kind of conditioned. And the rider is the logic, is the rationality. And the elephant will take us in whatever direction it wants, and then the rider tries to kind of gain control. And so there's this idea that our emotions will react to something, and then our rationality, our rational brain, will try and justify it afterwards. And he, he comes from a place of moral psychology. And, um, and actually a growing field of research, which I think sustainability needs to pay more attention to, is this field of eco-psychology, which understands the fundamental interlinkage between the consciousness of humans and the natural systems. And there are these terms, you know, the kind of catchy ideas of like nature deficit disorder, that we are in a way experiencing a psychosis because our lifestyles are so disconnected from our natural systems. Um, and I would say, uh, to, to get to the point about this introspective side of sustainability, I feel as though one of the core messages that we are advocating for in sustainability, without maybe saying so, is we're we're encouraging a larger understanding of the self in a way. We are hoping, we are hoping that we can all feel a sense of connection with the humans around us, with the natural systems around us, with, within this larger biosphere that we're living in. And that requires an expansion of who we are, who we relate to. And that, like you say, can be pretty scary for people, especially because it requires us in a way to maybe let go of some aspects of our identity. You know, even sitting here right now, I could be sitting here fully as Neda with the history of Neda and all of the stories that Neda has. But if I'm so stuck in, in that mind space, I would lose my chance to connect with you, you know? And so it's trying, I would argue that um, a shift that I, I think is central is trying to move away from this fragmentation and this separation and looking at the, the universe as this, you know, series of these fragmented, isolated existences, but rather seeing, seeing the interwoven, interconnected nature that we are and um, bringing it back to the self, I feel like through forms of self-reflection uh, and self-cultivative practices, we actually can get tastes of that sort of expansive nature, you know, mm -hmm. that, that we have, which then can help us feel more interconnected. And I would argue we are naturally environmentalists. You know, there's this whole um, biophilia hypothesis that says that we have co-evolved with nature, so it is in our nature to care you know, to care about, to care mm. about nature. So what I hear from you is that you have this really great vision of the society that you would like to see, and you're trying to embody basically the change that you would like to see. And one of the things that you said earlier is that people in the field of sustainability have this tendency to preach to others. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you do what you're doing without trying to <laughs> impose that upon mm -hmm. other people and how you're going to um, see out your dissertation research without, mm -hmm. you know, contradicting yourself or without. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful point. 
It's a very beautiful point. It's something I, I, I wrestle with that all the time. And actually, I had a conversation with my advisor where I was like, I can't do research with other people. I was like, I can't because if I'm talking about self-care, I can only talk about what's relevant and meaningful for me. How could I do it for anybody else? I don't know what's important for them. You know, and, and actually in terms of the research structure, um, I'm still in the process of developing it, but I think that this has led my advisor and I to, to settle on this idea of a two-staged uh, research process in the sense that one layer of the research is going to be disciplined, uh, very scientific investigation of my own self-care processes, um, how I navigate my forms of creative expression, how I navigate my experiences in nature, balanced with my self-reflective practices and, and holding a very detailed account of that. And then interwoven into that will be moments of exploration with different groups, different groups of change agents. And the way I think I'm, I'm framing it to, to maybe create some peace of mind for myself is that I, I don't want to tell anybody what to do because I don't know what they should do. All I can offer is what's meaningful and authentic for myself and almost like a toolkit. I can offer a series of practices and experiences that we can share together as a group that may be meaningful, that may prove to be transformative, or they might not. And all I can hope is that as a group, we can create a space where we show one another that your full being is important for my full being. My growth is important for your growth. Your growth is important for the collective growth. And we can hold that environment as a group without necessarily saying this is the answer. And many of the tools which I'm cultivating and, and hoping to introduce through the, the workshops I facilitate for my research are, they're, they're, in, they're investigative, they're inquirative, inquiring in nature, they're explorative, they're, they're not something that there is an answer because these things are more um, about each one of us taking the time to actually look at ourselves, you know, in this, in this new way. Um, and I think in terms of uh, the embodiment piece, I, I really feel this is central because you know, there's one thing to go around the world and, and, you know, you're not really saying what your values are, but you're kind of pushing them onto everybody by being like, oh, well, I don't do that. You know, like, oh, well, I brought my own, I, my own metal fork to this event. So I don't, you know, versus just being it, you know, if it's authentic to, if it's authentic to me, that's how I'm going to live. And if somebody notices and asks, sure, I'll talk to them more about it. But my goal is not to convert because I don't want anybody to do anything that's inauthentic to themselves. You know, my, my goal is for all of us to become critical, critically self-aware in the sense that we all are questioning, why am I doing this? Do I feel in alignment with this? Is this in, in alignment with the values that I hold dearly? And, and just practicing that and knowing that nothing ever stays fixed. We are always changing. There are values that I held very dearly to myself that there are times where I had to realize I can't be so rigid on this subject, you know, and, and we just need to be open to hearing and experiencing different, different forms of practice and, um, you know, but it is, it's, I'm never done, you know, we're always learning. We're always growing. Okay. So, um, what, I know that a lot of your techniques are 
creative and um, you use a lot of improvisation, but also you must have some sort of idea or vision of how you see um, the particularly the workshops going. Mm -hmm. um, so what kind of tools and methods and experiences do you think might happen at mm -hmm. these workshops that you'll facilitate? Right. Um, and what kind of outcomes do you think you're looking for or would be fruitful mm -hmm. or, or considered successful? Yeah, very good, uh, very good point to bring up about the balance of um, how much can we prepare versus how much can we allow for there to be emergent phenomenon that arise? Because each group that I sit with, until I sit with them and feel who they are, you know, I don't know what to do, but I can be prepared. And um, uh, um, a mentor and, and professor of mine right now, Liz Lerman, she, she has this idea of the toolkit. She kind of brought that language into my sphere. And she has this image of like a cubby. And she was like, you know, I don't know which ones I'm going to use, but I'm going to fill all my cubbies with these tools that I can draw from. So um, I've done a lot of work with uh, participatory theater, and uh, it's a really neat way of basically allowing people to semi-prepare a scene. You know, let's say we're, we're working on the topic of uh, the travel ban that's just been implemented against Muslim countries. You know, they can prepare a scene, a group could work together, prepare a scene on what they're passionate about and the issues that they feel are important. They act out, let's say, a five-minute scene. Then they stop and they start over. The audience member who, they are spect actors, they are both spectators and actors, they can then interject and create, you know, transformative moments within the scene that no one's prepared for because that's completely improvised. But there is a balance of preparation that comes from doing the research beforehand, picking what characters they want to embody. Um, another method that I definitely know I'll be using forms of um, different practices of self-reflection through um, you know, mindfulness, or you can call it meditation, forms of practices where we take a moment to, to really check in. And rather than, I think we often think about meditation, we see this image of like a, you know, a skinny man in a cloak in a cave, you know, or something like that. But I, I truly believe that it's a practice that we can learn to cultivate in every waking step of our life. You know, even washing dishes can be a form of mindfulness. Sweeping the floor can be a form of mindfulness. So um, because our lives tend to be very busy and, and very quick, it's nice to just take a minute to sit. And I feel as though that's something that I've um, I found very helpful when opening, you know, when starting a class, for example, or when opening at a workshop that I facilitated, just taking the time for people to get connected with that moment. You know, who am I? Where am I? Why am I here? Just taking a minute to check in. And then also I've been experimenting a lot with the power of sound. Um, I've done some work with uh, singing, you know, like acoustic singing and stuff on my own, but I've been exploring the power of um, shared creation of, of song and uh, the vibrations that, that are generated from that place of group harmony can be really, really powerful. So, for example, something I've done at um, a few different workshops is uh, starting by uh, t having everybody pick a sound from their name. So, like, my name is Neda. I could pick a mmm uh, d or ah sound, for example, and all in unison, we all, you know, speak our sound. And it's a really nice way of kind of creating the space and filling the space with who we are, but then getting a taste of that larger in interconnected web. Um, 
And then, I mean, these are just some tools that I've brought up, but other tools that I'm definitely looking at using are, um, uh, you know, observational nature activities where we, we are in silence, you know, observing, observing nature. Maybe one person closes their eyes, guides someone else and gives a multi-sensory experience, crushes leaves near their ear, maybe rubs something, puts it in front of their nose, allows us to intake nature in a new way. Um, or, you know, doing activities such as gesturing, you know, observing, you know, observing a wall and noticing what gestures our body wants to react. And these are ways to just open ourselves up into knowing that intuitively we are creative beings. Intuitively, we are always generating very powerful material, but due to the way that we've been conditioned by you know, our cultural context or the educational system or our job conditions, we really forget that we have, we all have this creative power. And so that again, like I said, the, this combination of nature experience, creative expression and self-reflection, those are the, the three kind of bins that I'm building, building tools that I'll be able to draw from for the workshops. Great. That's, that's really awesome. Um, when you, say, <laughs> when you say all of this, it sounds very radical to me because you're using words like beings and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I'm wondering how, I mean, you must, I mean, like, how do you fit in with the people around you? How do you communicate to this to other people? Do mm -hmm. people, how do you maintain confidence mm -hmm. and um, stay strong in your what your passion is when mm -hmm. this isn't necessarily what everybody and like what's normal mm -hmm. for a PhD. There are these moments of paradigm shifts and I feel as though I'm so privileged that I was born at this time where we're right on this cusp of the paradigm shift and there are people who are radical right now. They are seen as radical because we are going against what the mainstream narrative of society is. But I, th I believe it's just a matter of time till en enough ripples are made and enough of a dent is made in the collective consciousness until, you know, there's a large scale like, okay, you know, awakening about it. But it's a great point about how to communicate the material in different ways. And this is something that I've been learning. There's a certain level of authenticity that I will never compromise on the truth of why this, this research is important to me. And I will communicate that you know, always straight from my heart, but the language in which I use, for example, knowing in front of certain audiences to, to stay focused more on this idea of um, uh, self-care, preventing burnout, leadership resilience, kind of using the, the key words that, that these um, maybe higher up institutions like. Um, and then also in terms of how I situate myself into other conversations, um, you know, from a very simple perspective, I think I can say authenticity feels contagious. And I know that there have been times where I've entered a space and somebody has immediately created a judgment off of me. But then I might say something that really resonates with them. And even if they can't actually receive it in that moment, I can feel that it's created some little bit of a shift in them just because I've said something that resonates with them. Um, and so I do my best, you know, I cultivate my own practices of self-care and this, I mean, I tell people all the time, I talk to myself in the mirror 
a lot, <laughs> you know, I'll give myself that sense of encouragement um, and, and really, and, and really try to check myself as well of like, if somebody triggers me, you know, if somebody disagrees with me, I don't just dismiss it and say, oh, that person's wrong. No, I, I, I really look into it and try to ask myself, okay, what are they bringing up? Am I not considering what they're bringing up? And, and really try and try and work with it. And at the same time, through my, my disciplined practices of self-reflection, I am constantly trying to uh, produce something that's more and more authentic, more and more raw. You know, the ancient Greeks have this concept of paresia, which it's, um, you know, this, this word for speaking the raw truth, as opposed, this is in contrast to like rhetoric, rhetoricians, rhetoricians, I don't know what the right word is, um, who, you know, who are speaking in this fanciful language. It's in contrast to that of just speaking raw. And I'm trying my best to cultivate a, a, a practice of speaking as, as raw of the truth that I can, knowing when to even open my mouth, when not to open my mouth. And, um, and I actually am intentionally taking a, a transformative approach to my research because I do feel it is time for the PhD experience to be expanded because I feel as though the, I mean, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the, you know, Eastern philosophers back in the day, an education was for an understanding of the art of being the art of what it means to be a human being practicing what it means to be honest and authentic to ourselves. That's what an education was for. Those are the questions that we explored. And uh, far too often throughout the dissertation process, you know, I've noticed classmates just become very overwhelmed, very disenchanted, very narrow focused, which you know, there are, at, there are benefits of somebody studying a really specific molecule that can be fundamental for the, the advancement of solar panels. You know, that can be beneficial, but it's also important to keep in mind the whole context of the being, the person who's, who's conducting the research. And in the case of my research, I'm hoping that I can offer, um, as a part of my dissertation, rather than a traditional defense, I'm hoping I can actually offer an experience of what these workshops have been like and what my my experiences of self-care and, and working on my introspective sustainability, how what my experience has been like, I can I'm hoping I can offer it for others to to get a taste of as well, to to see how it resonates with them. And um, you know, we're at a place where we have so much information, we have so many papers, so many videos, so many articles. We are overwhelmed in many cases with the amount of data that we have. Um, and I'm looking at how to conceptualize this data in, in a different way, in a way that is more of an experiential based intake, since I feel as though, you know, our experiences act as like uh, reference points that once we've had an experience of something, I can use as that as a reference point of like, okay, well, I've experienced that. So I know what it's like. Um, so, so I'm hoping, uh, to provide an alternative conception of what a dissertation can be so that we can advance the field of academia so that we can really you know go back to what a what a education what a university education was was for into exploring these notions of self-care and self-study and um, how that is fundamental to the to the human experience great when you speak about speaking from a place of honesty and 
um, kind of um, just being truthful and honest. Hopefully that opens up a space for other people to be honest and truthful, and hopefully that will open up a space for people to have civic, nonviolent forms of communication. And, you know, hopefully that can mitigate some of the polarization we're seeing in society um, politically. So I think that's all the time that we have today. Um, it was great to talk to you. Thank you. It's so fun.